Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, Magnetic Resonance Elastography Predicts Prognosis for NASH Patients. This conversation starts with Louise Campbell and Alina Allen discussing the psychological and practical aspects of treating patients with cirrhosis, in the process revealing some contrast between how medicine is practiced in the U.S. and the U.K. Roger Green then asks what the implications for these kinds of results might be in terms of compassionate use protocols for future potent antifibrotic agents before they are approved, and raises Michael Charlton's question from NASH Tag 2021 about who will be the Larry Kramer of NASH. Regardless of whether you focus on the psychological aspects of patient treatment, policy and advocacy, or simply study fatty liver disease, there's something in this conversation for you. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, Join the conversation in our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatologist and hepatology researcher Dr. Alina Allen of the Mayo Clinic, as they discuss Dr. Allen's recent groundbreaking paper on using MRL elastography to predict disease progression in cirrhotic and non-cirrhotic patients this week on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Can I just ask, obviously, when you talk about 32% die or uh, develop decompensation and three times greater for the rise in the one kilopascal in the non-cirrhotics, how has this changed your psychological support mechanisms for these patients? In my experience, people who develop cirrhosis sometimes don't understand what cirrhosis means, but get less access to things like palliative care. And it's not because they're terminal in those extent. It's about the level of psychological support that excellent facilities and sort of palliative care can put in for patients to help the understanding because it's very difficult to have that conversation with somebody when you have such stark figures. So the whole premise of how we support patients and their families to support patients with those figures, did it make a change to what the Mayo provide? Yes, as usual, your insight is beyond right into the patient. What does this mean to them and how does this impact impact their care. Education is a big piece. I think, you know, in, in my NASH clinic, we, we have an hour slot for the initial consultation, which I find that, keep in mind that the patients who come to us already have the MRE, have the lab. So most of the time is to be discussed on here where you are now, based on the best state-of-the-art tools we have currently, you are on, on this part of the spectrum. And we explain this F0 to F4 and then F4 and beyond decompensation and, and all the things that happen. That's the easy part. The hard this part is the education piece. What can happen in the future? When, you know, should I put my affairs in order? That's the next question that comes when you say diagnosis of cirrhosis. It comes almost like a death sentence for some patients, especially who have not had knowledge before of, of this uh, degree of, of disease. So we spend a lot of time on understanding where their risk is. That's why this percentage helps them put this into perspective, the number of years. And these patients were all compensated cirrhotic. So this piece of information is not 
not to be used in those with with end-stage liver disease or decompensated cirrhosis where the discussion goes either go to the transplant evaluation or palliative care if it's beyond or there's a big contraindication. So I spend a lot of time on educating them on what's the best action we can do to prevent at least disease progression, if not regression. Staying where they are because most of these patients are asymptomatic and they're doing fine. That's the kind of the, the biggest goal. How much weight should we lose and by what measures? It's another big box we use in clinical practice where we say at least 10% of the current body weight is where most of the people start to regress. But 10% is not 10% for everyone. It comes again to that individualized approach. Maybe somebody needs 5%, maybe somebody needs 10% to see a little bit of improvement in stiffness or disappearance of fat in the liver. So if they come again in a year and they lost 10% of body weight, but we see regression and the fat in the liver has disappeared, even if they're not at goal, I can say, if you're staying here for the rest of your life, maybe we can prevent that discussion of palliative care and all those things. Maybe they lost 10%, but the dial hasn't moved much. We need to push the dial a bit more and see them again. So it's that individualized fine-tuning rather than saying, here's your stamp, lose 10%, come back in X uh, number of years. And that's excellent. We use palliative care here slightly differently. It can be just to access the level of psychological support and trained people who have access to more resources, I suppose, not necessarily that are on a mortality curve. I think for here, just to answer the question of the psychological, because that's a big piece. What we have implemented in our NASH clinic and the person who sees them right after me is a, a wellness coach who meets with them for 20 minutes for this initial consultation of identifying potential barriers to weight loss. So we have this next opportunity of identifying if stress is a big factor, is, is eating a big factor, is not moving a big factor, or how else we can help them. And, and then after that, um, enroll them into some sort of distance coaching with behavioral modification and then identifying if they need to see a psychologist, if they need to see a weight loss uh, endocrinologist and so on. So this psychological support is crucial. That's great to know because it's um, highly beneficial. Just as a separate question, do you do um, anxiety measurement scores before they have their scans? Because what I've certainly seen in HCC monitoring and when we do their ultrasounds is some patients need counselling and get really anxious because it's that Russian roulette of do I have cancer this time? Do I not? For your guys, it's about do I have a one kilopascal increase or do I not? <laughs> it's quite an anxiety-provoking experience for some. Yes, maybe not as bad as biopsy, right? But it's true. Some people are claustrophobic. Some people are worried about what the results will show. The biggest piece for the cirrhotics is clinical trial design. How we use this information to select those patients who are more likely to benefit from a drug. To me, that's one of the biggest challenges currently, right? Because we have so many drugs that have shown a big improvement into, you know, fibrosis regression because we focus on on that illusion that we'll see F4 moving to F3 or 2 in a year or 18 months or whichever the interim analysis is. And to, to have that, you have to have a very highly potent drug or a pi- patient population who is a very high risk to develop your, the outcomes of interest, which most of the time are decompensation outcomes or, or death, just like we designed this study here, in order to have some some benefit or some sign of effectiveness. So if we were to step again outside of that box of F4 to enroll or to assess the interim results, but piece that liver stiffness information to the pr- probability of outcomes at the time of enrollment may be useful. What I mean by that is we in- enroll patients with cirrhosis 
if they have a liver stiffness around four to five kilopascals, their probability of having the outcomes is very low, right? In the next year or two, it's up to 10%. Not a lot of them will develop that. If most of the enriched population is into seven to eight kilopascals, for example, that risk increases to 30% in the next one to two years. So that gives you a higher margin over, you know, to, to, to identify more outcomes to see if the drug is actually better than placebo if you were to either enrich a population that's at high risk or at least analyze the data, either interim or final, risk stratified for this extra piece of information. Taking that into consideration in trial design is a huge opportunity using this kind of data that links to outcomes. That makes excellent sense to me. And then I run around to my favorite question so far of 2021, which was Michael Charlton's question about who's going to be the Larry Kramer of fatty liver. And when I read the paper about cirrhotic prognosis, I had a thought that wasn't diametrically opposite to yours, but was somewhat, which is at what point is somebody's KPA level high enough that we decide to go to compassionate use, even if we don't have approval yet, because we have drugs that we think might be strongly antifibrotic. Now, maybe no one's hit that level yet, but that could be the year, year and a half. At what point do we start to think about compassionate use for patients because they're so likely to have a bad outcome that we just go straight there, that we don't even worry about the trial. We just see if we can help them humanely. I don't know the answer, but that is the Larry Kramer question, right? I think you, you nailed it, right? It's where's that point beyond which you don't even need to study and just, just use something because they will have decompensation and, you know, in the next year, we want to prevent that. We will know these answers if we design trials for cirrhotics beyond this rate-limiting biopsy staging, and that's it. We need to look as, as, as wide as we can by including all these non-invasive biomarkers and then establishing that cutoff. Right now, it's hard to know because this is simply a natural history study. It's kind of a societal cutoff. How, how much risk are you willing to take? Is it 20%? Is it 28% of decompensation? We don't have this kind of data in, in the hepatology world. So the risk of HCC to where you say ultrasound is cost-effective, there's nothing like this in decompensation in cirrhosis. So it's a very hard question to answer, but probably answerable in the next few years as drugs come on the market for cirrhotics and as we learn more about these um, these biomarkers. So some intuition is a dirty word. Do you have any intuition about what we will learn as we learn that we haven't seen yet in enough detail to be able to prove, but either it's a thing in the numbers that isn't significant, but ratified by personal experience you have treating patients or um, any other form of intuition? I don't think we have currently anything beyond this. We, that's exactly the reason we, we, we need these type of studies. We need to move beyond stage four. We need to move the, beyond the fact that maybe there's a sign of portal hypertension. You know, portal hypertension is probably the other next thing, but maybe that's a bit too late. If you see signs of portal hypertension on imaging, it's very close to decompensation. We need to find those fast progressors. We don't have enough information about those. They're very rare in my experience. I mean, I think from the studies that have been published on fast progressors, there's going to a handful of hundreds. So I don't think those are going to move the needle very uh, much. But I think overall, this disease progresses very slowly. When you get to that window of opportunity is this stage four or cirrhosis, but before decompensation, and that's where these non-invasive biomarkers need to tell us more than uh, what we know now. So having a probability of an outcome is, is, is something important. Can we find that from other biomarkers that are widely available is the next question. Can we find 
fine blood biomarkers that can tell us. Fibroscan ha- has done a bit of work in that too. Can we apply that to the, to the real world? These are It's a fascinating world because there are so many questions in this complex disease and there are so many people working into these. I don't think we'll ever cover every piece of the puzzle, but we need to think about these questions like you pose it. How do I identify the badness before it starts? When uh, Alina was talking there, I was thinking of Mary Ranello when she was presenting at NASHTAG and she was very much talking in a in a similar way that in the cirrhotic population, it is about looking at the outcomes, the decompensation, the varices, the portal hypertension increases, because those are the ones we can measure. And I think this is now where the strength of our combined non-invasive technologies have the advantage in this population because we're not going to biopsy them. So for me, it's it's about how we find the right cirrhotics at the right moment in time to be able to assist quickest. But also, as Roger, you quite rightly said, where do we get to a threshold where we enrich that population, but we don't risk threatening a study outcome by saying they've gone too far, if you know what I mean. It, it, we can put compassionate use medications in, but we still need to be measuring those outcomes in a a collective evidence-based way. And how do we do that in in such a needy population? I think this is something where we're just starting to scratch the surface and we start to kind of collectively think that way using MRE, using other non-invasive technologies. I think non-invasive is the key. Or is it it AI in histology? I I don't know if I have more than let's keep continue to think to think about this. I hear that and I agree with that. Maybe the most exciting thing to come out of this work for cirrhotics is exactly where you started, which is there was this big box called F4. And basically what you were doing was putting your hand into it and not knowing exactly what the meaning of what you were going to pull out was. So to the degree that we now can get a lot more specific about staging, estimating, tracking, all those things for fibrotic patients, that's huge. That will clearly save lives fairly quickly once we know more about doing it. And and that's great. Back to non-cirrhotics. I do have one question, which is that the hazard ratios are lower, right? About what? 1.3 versus almost 3. And the percentage of patients that are progressing is lower. I love the idea that we're going to determine how long to your next evaluation. With cholesterol, you had two things going on, which was you had it getting overhyped. And then people saying, but wait a second, not that many folks are getting heart attacks. And then they became too blasé. How do you think we walk the uh, balance on that so that we do neither of those two things? That's the big key currently, and I think in the non-serotic world. And I think that's where my next step in my research program will take. We cannot put everybody through an MRE. Most of them are going to be in the lower stages, right? Very low prevalence of of advanced disease in, in the population in general. If we were to just report this to the millions of people lurking around with unknown, maybe unknown fatty liver disease, it is not practical to say everybody goes through an MRE. If you have three kilopascals, you come in three years. If you, That's not feasible. This is a very good tool to individualize the trajectory and the management of those who have a kind of a liver progressive phenotype. So the idea, the way I see this world is kind of like a funnel. We have to have better tools to identify those who are at risk of having liver disease, having progression to fibrosis. And those would be the people funneled into this individualized approach of using state-of-the-art 
best we can do in non-invasive imaging to know when to follow them at what frequency and how to interpret their dynamic response over time. So who are those people? And that's not currently known. I think, you know, there's the work of several epidemiologic studies showing that diabetics are those at higher risks. Hispanics are, are, are those at higher risk, but that that's not enough because there are some people without diabetes who do this. So we need to be better there. We need to think cost effectiveness. We need to think about practical aspect of this. So another area where there's a lot of researchers doing a lot of work into this kind of stratification, and that's the next piece of the puzzle. Alina said it on head. I think it is the funnel. We can't MRA everybody, but what we can do is funnel patients through in the higher risk categories. I might think Marsden did it last week, the week before with cost effectivity, but we can fiber scan people very frequently. I had a phone call from a patient the other week who's been told that they, because his fat was 380, but his stiffness was soft, that they can't scan him for three years, which is our current thinking process. He's desperate to know. He still feels tired, but he's lost a lot of weight. So people want to access these tests so we can do that. And by that large funnel, we can send the right people to MRI, PDFF, to biopsy to some extent. So it is about accessibility at primary care levels for wellness. We have to look beyond the ones who are diagnosed to find the ones who need to be diagnosed, to need Alina's help, who need the help that everybody can get to them. So I think it is very much a funnel. But where do we start that funnel to make it cost effective? Marsden would say 40-year-old with diabetes is now cost effective. We are getting to areas where these non-invasive tests now become more and more cost effective. And by increasing their supply, they become more and more cost effective, which is the benefit, I hope, for liver disease and to prevent liver patients in the future. I, I agree with you, Louise. I think empowering the primary care physicians is really the key to this. I was initially struck, I think maybe naive at that time, when I uh, there was a, a paper we looked at in a large, an Optum database, a large database looking at specifically at cost. But the side thing that we found in that paper was that we in GI and hepatology see three to four percent of these patients with known NAFLD. So the vast, there's a figure in that paper that struck me when I drew it. There's a blue of, of primary care and there's a light blue of GI, really a very, the thin, the thick tip of the iceberg. Those are the people that get to us. Those are the people who go through FibroScan and MRE and the biopsies, but 3%, that's it. There's the other ones who lurk around and, you know, even if they have NAFLD and the primary care doctor knows about them, a lot of them don't know what to do with them. You can't send them all. Who do you send? There's so much more work we have to do and so much more education we have to do on that on, on, for, for, to empower them to know how to risk stratify. I think that's the key of population health management in NAFLD and and that's where we need to, to focus more on. As, as I was listening, I was thinking one big step might be a simple test that ruled out false negatives, because then we know we would be catching everybody that might have a problem. Uh, the flip side is a simple test that ruled out false negatives tend to have an awful lot of false positives, so you might not be slimming the field enough. Where do you see research going that will make the role of primary care in the initial screening process more manageable for that population? I think the current efforts are into identifying those advanced disease people and I, I listened to Ian Rowe's pod, uh, podcast in, in his episode and it was enlightening to know that, you know, ELF actually doesn't help in that situation. Do you trust FIB4? FIB4 has a lot of false positive predictive value, especially for uh, older age population. I, I think we've, we put a lot of emphasis on that side, finding those seekers first for the right reasons. Maybe knowing that the majority will actually never develop advanced liver disease, we should focus on the flip coin, finding those who don't have issues, at least from my perspective 
perspective from the literature that I've read is a little bit less emphasized. That's one aspect. And the second key point of this is it has to be easy. We have to provide them tools that are just very easy to identify, like check engine system type of things. These are my, my, my two big comments on this. I'm passionate about this non-invasive testing area, and I'm, I'm so happy to see that there's so much emphasis in, into this world. I'm excited to work along with my colleagues to, to, to find more of this. And I know these consortium studies in Europe and the United States are focusing on this part too. And I think we're moving the dial slowly, but we are. And I think as we go into the, the clinical trial and maybe when the drugs are on the market, we'll really know more about what happens at the population level, how we actually use these non-invasive tests because they will be used. They were not going to be liver biopsy every year to see how people respond to drugs. So I think there's a lot more to learn. I think there should be a design where all these patients will be captured. So we learn about all these non-invasive tests in the real world and which one provides more information and, and what's the most accurate way to, to follow these people. We need to think five, 10 years from now, what will we do if we had a drug right now? What kind of system would we implement? Kind of like a COVID dashboard, what people, what happens after the vaccine? Who gets this? And in, in my in my view, we need to collectively think about something like that in, in all the continents um, once these drugs are there. So I don't know how feasible this is, but it's something that will occupy us for the next decade or so. Well, I'm a big fan of the idea of Dare to Dream. I think that's fantastic. So, um, Louise, we're going to get to do something we never get to do, which is, is the non-physicians in this thing sit down and go, wow, that was amazing. And what did you find particularly eye-opening about it? I thought it was all amazing. Uh, I think their expertise in MRE is world-leading, and therefore there are complications with MRE in the ability to read the scans and some of the nuances with it that may not be as applicable in other units, I suppose. So, But they are leading that field. And as I say, it was frightening data. If you say that these patients get excellent care, I, I go back to the comment at the beginning that it's frightening if patients don't get access to the sort of care that the Mayo Clinic and top hepatology units give. But I suppose what was interesting was the wellness aspect. They get a wellness coach. And I'd like to see a lot more of that standardised throughout the care of patients in all units. It's not something I've often had access to. I'm a mental health nurse as well as a general nurse, so I can use certain skills. Uh, a lot of units use nurse specialists, but I think that whole side of how they use a holistic approach and an individualised patient approach, I'm a big advocate of. That MREing of those patients yearly for some of them is is excellent movement. That's a great point. I, I had probably three or four moments as we went through this that really jump out to me. I'd never thought about the compassionate use question before I got on this call and started thinking about the implications of that 32% number. And then I said to myself, if somebody's in that dire shape, then what's our priority? And Michael, Michael Charlton has stamped the Larry Kramer question in my mind. That's not going to leave as long as I'm working with uh, this disease. So I always go there at moments like that. And I think that is a legitimate question. I think Alina's point is a good one, that with the right technology read appropriately and managed well, we have the ability to start to make those decisions. I think you're right. And when you're talking about compassionate access, when we listen to the FDA discuss risk-benefit ratios, when you talk about 32% mortality with a one kilopascal increase in your MRE, where does it not become a risk-benefit ratio that the patient stays alive by using some of these medications? Well, that that's well, that is the Larry Kramer question, right? That was the HIV patients going to Washington and saying, okay, you're not sure this drug is safe. I have 100% risk of dying from this disease. Why do I care about the safety of the drug? That's going to 
to be the model is to ask, where has the patient gone far enough? There is no benefit to science to be served by anything better other than putting them in registry and seeing what you get. I think Alina was right. It's about education. I don't think primary care physicians around the world are given necessarily all the tools that they need. And But there's a shared platform, I think, in a lot of diseases that you can share resources. But a lot of funding streams means that my dietitian is paid for by endocrinology. Therefore, you can't use it from hepatology. Actually, we need to be sharing to get the most out of resources that we've got. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. Please join the ongoing dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. We will release our next episode on Wednesday, April 14th, when we preview the fourth Global Nash Congress. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe and see you on the podcast or in the conversation groups. Bye-bye now.